0: So today my talk is called Breaking the Spell of the Postmodern World, and I'd like to start with a few words about how to teach arguments and ideas. I think one of the major problems that we've run into is that it's extremely hard to get ideas and arguments that you have in your own head into the heads of other people, right? We have our own constellations of concepts and ideas and our frameworks floating around in our own minds. And one of the problems that we tend to run into is that other people don't have the same experiences that we tend to have, right? They don't think the same way we do. They haven't seen the same things that we have. They're unaware of, of what we've been through. And so we end up with this little problem of how do I get my ideas from my head into theirs? So I'd like to talk about that for just a minute so that we can get some tools as we go so that everyone can follow along with what I'm doing. A lot of the time, people try to teach things by giving a a clear definition, and they want to lay out a clear definition, an idea number one, an idea number two, and idea number three, and they lay out their idea, and then they say, and we should do, therefore, this, 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 this. I actually don't think that's the right way to do things because I don't think typically that's how... People operate. So I'm going to lay out something else. I think that big ideas, philosophy, theology, the human experience, meaning, I think they come to us in about, I would say, four different ways. So stage one is the theoretical view. So that's concerned with reason, logic, rationality, debate, evidence, and argumentation. Stage two is concerned with experience, And feeling and this is closely associated with drama and the arts. So when you turn on a YouTube video or you're watching a movie or you're listening to a song, there's a set of ideas that are coming at you through the screen. There's a worldview that is involved there and I think a lot of times that we ignore that We think that all the ideas are just coming from the academy or at the idea of debate or or at the level of, of rationalization and analysis. And we forget that ideas and philosophies and meaning and theology comes to us through drama, through the arts, through music. What are we learning when we sing worship songs, right? Okay. Stage three is concerned with how we make sense of the world and how we interpret the world around us. And stage four is concerned with the practical application of ideas as they actually apply to the real world. So you argue and explain and clarify your ideas at stage one. You illustrate the ideas at stage two with a dramatic illustration or with an analogy. You show how those ideas help make sense of the world at stage three and then you provide the practical application at stage 4. And what this does, this allows us to bring in multiple different ways and multiple different views of an idea so people can play with it. I think some people try to use stories and emotions to try and hijack people's emotions, right? They tell an emotional story to try and hijack your heart to what we say tug at your heartstrings and hope to get around the mind and hope that people's empathy, and their sympathy, and their emotional response will get them to kind of turn their brains off. But I actually don't think that's where the the power of story comes from. I think that the explanatory value of storytelling is not achieved by getting around people's intellect by hijacking their emotions through the imagination. I think the real power of storytelling, and the way to do it well, is to understand that stories can help people use their imaginations to run their intellectual and conceptual fingers over an idea in a way that helps them grasp the concept that's being illustrated. Once that happens, they can see the connection between the descriptions of the ideas at the academic level. They can use the stories and the examples to get a hold of what that looks like. And then we can apply the practical application. So I'm going to walk us through four stages in this lecture. We're going to look at the philosophical situation in America up at the academic level and the intellectual level. That's going to be the level of ideas. Then we're going to work our way through the cultural situation in America, which is going to be at the level of feeling and experience. Then we're going to talk about how, in a postmodern world, with the cultural shifts we had, people make sense of the world. And then we're going to look at what the practical consequences of that has been on the ground. Okay? So everyone follow along with that. So we're going to go through those four areas. We're going to go through the philosophical situation, then we're going to go through the cultural situation, then we're going to talk about how that's used to make sense of the world, and then we're going to talk about the consequences. So I'd like to start my talk with a quote from Vaclav Havel, who was the former leader of the Czechoslovakia, or sorry, the Czech Republic, which became which derived from Czechoslovakia. He was there in the 70s when they were under communism, and he led them through that period. This talk was given in 1994, and he says this. Today, for instance, we may know immeasurably more about the universe than our ancestors did, and yet, it increasingly seems they knew something more essential about it than we do, something that escapes us. The same thing is true of nature and of ourselves. The more thoroughly all of our organs and their functions and their internal structures and the biochemical reactions that take place within them are described, the more we seem to fail to grasp the spirit, purpose, and meaning of the system that they create together and that we experience as ourselves. And thus today we find ourselves in a paradoxical situation. We enjoy all the achievements of modern civilization that have made our physical existence on this earth easier in so many important ways, yet we do not know exactly what to do with ourselves or where to turn. The world of our experiences seems chaotic, disconnected, confusing. There appear to be no integrating forces, no unified meaning, no true inner understanding of phenomena in our experience of the world. Experts can explain anything in the objective world to us, yet we understand our own lives less and less. In short, we live in the postmodern world where everything is possible and almost nothing is certain. Does that not describe the world that we live in? Breaking apart, fragmenting? That was written in 1994. So we have all of these advances in modern science and yet we've lost the meaning of life when we can't figure out who we are. <clears throat> when I was younger, I was, at a, I was at a house party where someone had a little too much to drink. And uh, this guy kind of sat up and he was, he was drunk and he said, where, where am I? And he could, didn't know where he was, he had, had too much. So I said, I went over to him and I sat down and I tapped this, I said, hey, hey, do you know who I am? And he looked at me and he goes, oh, now we're really in trouble. I don't know where I am and he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> that's, that's the postmodern world. That's, that's what it is. We don't know where we are. We don't know who we are. We don't know what to make of anything. So we live in a society with no shared meaning, we can't agree on anything, we're fragmenting, fracturing, and falling apart, we're ever more divided, we can't agree on basic foundational truths and principles, we can't even agree on the basic meaning of words. The left will say anyone who wants to be a woman can identify as a woman, and the right thinks that being a woman is a matter of biology, chromosomes, pregnancy, giving birth. Other than that, things are fine. So... (laughs) So, so how do we get here? Well, the first thing we're gonna have to look at is the shift from the modern world to the postmodern world. And what I mean by the modern world is the world of the Enlightenment. Enlightenment thinkers think that the world is knowable through the use of evidence, reason, rationality, and logic. The careful application of these tools allows us to arrive at objective truth. We can know some things are true, some things are false. The world is, again, knowable, and objective. It makes sense. There are good and evil things, there's such a thing as right and wrong, and there's such a thing as meaning in life. <clears throat> the Enlightenment person believes that beauty exists and will reject the idea that everything is meaningless. The Enlightenment person tends to think that knowledge is advancing, that life is getting better, and things are improving. So that was a the dominant view in the West, I would say, for probably the past 200 years. It hasn't remained static, but generally that's what we tend to think. If we want to know something, what do we do? Is we use reason, logic, evidence, we use our epistemic tools. But I think that we've entered the postmodern era in the same way we went from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age, in the same way that we went from the Middle Ages to the Enlightenment. We've now gone from the modern world, and we've stepped into the postmodern world. Now, to explain all of postmodern philosophy would take a very very long time. It would take years just to choke through all the thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of philosophy. And all too often when we try to map the city of academic postmodernism, academics end up trying to take us on all the detours, scenic routes, side streets, dead end and back alleyways of the academic world and we end up getting lost and disoriented. People get confused and nobody's sure what to think. So we're not going to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take you on a tour of the major landmarks, highways, and central hubs of the city of postmodernism. And we're going to do that through three thinkers, and we're going to focus on three major themes and ideas that have kind of set the tone for the postmodern world. I'm not really interested in cashing out every jot and title of the thousands and thousands and thousands of pages because there simply is no time to do that. But I reject the idea that if we can't, you know explain every single thing that every single philosopher said that somehow we're not allowed to talk about it. I don't I don't buy that at all. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at the landmarks. We're gonna look at the major hubs, okay? All right, so we're gonna start with Jean Baudrillard. So Jean Baudrillard said, gives, I'll read a definition of simulacra. It's something that replaces repre- reality with its representation. A simulation is no longer that of a territory, it's a referential being or a substance. It's the generation by models of a real without origin or reality. Okay, that's perfectly clear, right? Yeah, we all? Yeah, we all? Everyone. <laughs> okay. Part of the problem is the way that these guys write is just so absolutely awful that you can't get through it. So what we're going to do is we're going to use an analogy. So suppose I'm in ancient Rome. This is the strawberry Slurpee, so here we go. So I'm walking around in ancient Rome, because I'm very old, and I see some berries sitting on the side of a road, and I go and I pick them up, and I say, that's not bad. I like these. These are strawberries, and the strawberries are real, right? They're real strawberries. I just go, they're just growing along the side of the road. Okay, so then 1,500 years go by, and I'm very old, I'm still alive, and I figure out, hey, wait, I can grow the strawberries. I just take the seeds, I plant them on the farm, so I start growing strawberries. Then I figure out that, wait, I'm only going to plant the seeds from the biggest, reddest, sweetest, juiciest strawberries. And then, at the age of, ripe old age of 1500, I get married, and my wife decides she's going to make strawberry jam. After she makes the jam, she just says, hey, I could take this jam and I can put it in pie and we can have a strawberry pie. And someone else comes along and says, hey, we could take that strawberry pie filling, take it out, dry it out, and we could have a strawberry candy. Then someone else comes along and says, we can add sugar to the candy. Then someone else comes along and says, hey, we could use artificial flavoring. And someone else comes along and says, hey, we can use artificial sugar in the artificial flavoring for the artificial candy. So we can have a Jolly Rancher. <laughs> so then somebody else comes along and says, you know what we could actually do? We could make a soda pop that tastes like the Jolly Rancher candy. Then 7-Eleven finally shows up and they make... A strawberry slurpee that tastes like the Jolly Rancher soda, which tastes like the Jolly Rancher, which tastes like the artificial candy, which tastes like the artificial candy with the sugar, which tastes like the organic candy, which tastes like the pie, which tastes like the jam, which tastes like the strawberry, which tastes like the organic strawberry. And by the time we're done, the strawberry slurpee is completely separate from the organic strawberry. So my son picks up the strawberry slurpee and is walking around. And as he's walking, he sees these funny little berries at the side of the road, and he goes, hey, those things kind of look like the, the drawing on my cup on my Slurpee. And he goes over and he picks one up and he eats it, and he goes, well, that's, uh, This that's, tastes kind of funny. I like this strawberry, and he drinks it. That's what Baudrillard's talking about. The strawberries have been so processed and so changed and there's been so much added and so much taken away that by the time we're done, when my son, who's 8 years old, thinks of strawberry, he doesn't think of the flavor of the organic strawberries in the wild. He thinks of the flavor of the strawberry slurpee, which is nothing like the original strawberry. It's completely inauthentic. It's completely fake. It's not real. And what Baudrillard thinks is that almost everything in the world is like that. We could extend this to Instagram. Back in ancient Rome, we had women. Now, I'm single, I'm allowed to say these things. Now when you go onto Instagram, there's a picture of a woman, but she's had the liposuction done, she's had breast implants, she has makeup done, and she's had exfoliation done, and there's perfect lighting, and there's Photoshop, and there's filter. And by the time you're done, the image of the woman that you're actually seeing on Instagram doesn't look like any woman in reality. There's no woman that looks like that. You could do the same thing with with modern bodybuilding. There's not a single man on earth that could ever actually look like that. That's a combination of steroids and testosterone and Androstein Dione and all the other things that they do to the point where the thing that you're seeing on stage with the perfect lighting and all of the fake tan and everything else, it's not real. And Dara thinks that's the situation we're in. Everything, or very nearly everything, is the strawberry slurpee version of the real thing. We live in a world where we don't have the real thing anymore. What's the strawberry slurpee? It's, it's even better than the real thing, right? Okay. And so, <clears throat> Marnie Gauthier has said, as Jean Baudrillard and others note, post-modernity is a culture of fragmentary sensations, eclectic nostalgia, disposable simulacra, promiscuous superficiality in which the traditionally valued qualities of depth, coherence, meaning, originality, and authenticity are div- evacuated and dissolved amid the random swirl of empty signals. And you can see what she means. We're in a world where we are constantly bombarded with signs and symbols and ideas and meaning and information, and all of it is the strawberry slurpee of the real thing. So when we're com- constantly bombarded by fake and inauthentic, strawberry, slurpy versions of reality, signs upon signs, symbols that refer to other symbols, and the reality is nowhere to be found, what happens? All of the things like meaning, originality, depth, truth, all of that begins to dissolve and begins to become obscured by this, by the constant stream of signs and symbols, right? The constant stream of fake people on Instagram, the fake food. Someone says, I'm going to have fruit, and they have a fruit roll-up. When I have a strawberry, I want a strawberry Slurpee. We have fake meat prepared by fake chefs, and none of it is real. And so the underlying reality is being obscured, and that's what Baudrillard thinks we're in. He thinks that as our lives become ever more saturated with signs and symbols, communications, messages, advertising, and technology, we get dazzled by that system to the point where reality kind of comes out of focus for us. All of our thinking and all of the ideas that we have that we're picking up from the culture are these hyper-real strawberry slurpee versions of reality. And just like the way that the strawberry slurpee is no longer Anything like the organic strawberry, our understanding of the world no longer resembles the real world. Our understanding of the world is the strawberry slurpy understanding of the world. It's manufactured, processed, and inauthentic. So the next person we're going to talk about is Derrida. So I'm going to read a, a quote from Derrida <clears throat> from page seventy-three of On Grammatology. It is at the depth of this affirmation that the problem of relationships between linguistics and semantics is posed. The reference to the meaning of a signified thinkable and possible outside of all signifiers remains dependent on the theoteleology that I have evoked. Okay, is that clear? <laughs> that's, that's good, right? Okay. <laughs> so we're not going to read any Adairda either because that's going to take us absolutely forever to kind of crawl through that. So instead... We're going to use an analogy. So I want you to think of a set of buckets on a construction site. So I'm on a construction site. You know those big 10-gallon buckets? It's lunchtime. I wish I had a bucket. And I go pick up a bucket and I turn it over and I sit on the bucket and I hand you a bucket and I say, pull up a chair. Well, is it a bucket or is it a chair? It was a bucket but now it's a chair. And It seems like a silly thing, but to the person who believes that there's objective meaning in the world, well, a bucket can't be a chair, can it? What's the difference between a bucket and a chair? Did the bucket somehow become a chair? How can the word bucket and chair refer to the same object? Well, Derrida comes up with an answer which seems, at first blush, to be okay. He says, look, it's context and interpretation. There isn't some essential spirit or energy or mystical substance that transformed the bucket into a chair. There's no, like, ghostly apparition of chairness that floats into the buckets when we sit on them. No, he says, look, it's just context and interpretation. And what he's going to assume, or what he's actually going to conclude, is that everything is just context and interpretation. He's going to conclude that there is no objective, absolute, universal frame of reference for interpreting language at all. All language is composed of words we made up, and none of the words that we use were, are, are passed down naturally and just emblazed in crystals for us to have meaning. It's just the context and the interpretation. And that's got, it's got some intuitive force if you think about it. I mean, when you read, what do you do? You read the words and you you look at the context of the words and you try to interpret them. And Derek's going to say, look, see, we're just doing context and interpretation. The words don't have any inherent meaning that's floating around in the universe. It's not like there's some invisible spirit of the definition of the word that's just floating around. It's just that the words are in context of other words and they're used in specific context and you interpret them. What's so hard about that? And that's going to that, that's going to hold for, for anything and everything. So, he's going to think that because all matter, meaning is a matter of interpretation, that meaning is not a thing lying around inside the words for us to pull out. Meaning is created by us as we engage with the words and interpret them. So, any word you write requires me to interpret it in order for it to mean anything to me. So, meaning is a product of interpretation and context. And that would hold, in Derrida's view, for anything humans use to communicate. That's going to include songs, tweets, paintings, movies, sign language. It's all just interpretation and context. And that's going to sound pretty good. But it's going to actually lead us down a really terrible path. Because what you end up with is something like the following. The saying might be every viewpoint is just a view from a point. Because nobody is capable of getting a God's eye view of the world and getting everything perfect. And so there is no way to get a perfect, complete, objective, absolute, universal interpretation of any book, tweet, song, painting, sculpture, or anything else. And the result of that is that there's no fixed, complete, objective, absolute meaning to language. All you have is your interpretation in a particular context. And that means there's nothing objective to fix the meaning. Everything's in a flux where it can be interpreted and reinterpreted endlessly according to different viewpoints and different contexts. There isn't anything to serve as the linchpin to fix the meaning of words, and nothing pins down the meaning of language in a way that's fixed, stable, clear, and objective. Do you guys see the point? He takes this little thing and he says, look, I can turn a bucket into a chair, pretty simply, right? And it's context and interpretation. And you think, okay, that seems reasonable. And then you crawl, he takes you and you, and you, and you crawl your way to Well, All reading is context and interpretation. You think, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But if you push that to its, to its limitation and everything is context and everything is interpretation, that means meaning itself depends on context and interpretation. Which means that every time somebody reads something, they're reading it with a different context and a different viewpoint and pulling out a different interpretation. And no one of those interpretations has any claim to be objectively true or correct. There's just different interpretations made by different people in different contexts from different viewpoints. Derrida says there is no transcendental signified. There's no signified thing that's transcendentally existing outside the world. And what he means is that there's nothing that exists outside the matrix of context and interpretation, which can serve as a fixed, objective point of reference for language. There is no transcendent meaning that exists independently of context and interpretation. So there's no eternal, objective, absolute, transcendental. Transen- transcendent point of reference that can be used to fix the meaning of language. And there's no objective absolute frame of reference to interpret meaning. No one can stand outside of history and culture with a transcendent, universal, eternal, stable, fixed, objective frame of reference. Everything exists within the cultural and social systems of language. It's all context and interpretation right down to the bone. Don't worry, it gets worse. Because what's true of language is also true of the world. You interpret the world through your flawed, biased, finite human perspective, and you can't get a God's eye view of the world either. The world can also be viewed through countless different perspectives, and there's no one who gets to stand outside of the world and get a God's eye view of the world and view the world from every possible perspective. So no one can get a stable, complete, final, objective, and absolute universal interpretation of the world either. And so if you follow Derrida to his logical conclusion, what you end up with is a situation where there is no objective truth. There's just interpretations and reinterpretations of both language and the world. There is no stable, fixed, objective, absolute descriptions of the world because there's no objective frame of reference with which to interpret the world in an objective way. Let me say that again because I got tongue-tied. There can be no stable, fixed, objective, absolute descriptions of the world because there's no objective frame of reference within which to interpret the world in an objective way. And thus there's no way to give a complete, absolute, objective description of the world. And since there's no way to objectively interpret the world, and there's no way to objectively describe the world. But even if you could get an objective description, that description of the world would be written using language, and that language would be interpreted Through context interpretation, right? And because even if you could get an objective description of the world everyone could interpret that description differently and no one would get to decide which interpretation is correct you're back in your same problem again, right? So on a postmodern view of the world, there's no objective interpretations of either language or the world. Both the world and any description of the world can be interpreted and understood in a nearly infinite number of ways. And there's no objective way to decide which descriptions are objectively correct, and which interpretation of those descriptions is the right interpretation. So finally we're going to get to our last thinker, Mr. Michael Foucault. And Foucault's question is going to be primarily concerned with power. And what Foucault is going to say is that truth is not about descriptions of the world which correspond to reality. What he's going to say is that what counts as true is a matter of who gets to decide what is true and how they get to decide what is true. So in his view, there are certain people in a society who are given the privilege of getting to decide what is true because they have validity, credibility, legitimacy, social status, and trust that is required to be believed and just the thing and thus the things they say are true are then accepted as true by the society of large and you can kind of get where he's coming from with this a little bit with you could think of a scientist you would say well as a scientist or you would say that a scientist has the validity and the legitimacy and the credibility to talk about science same with a dentist if you went to a dentist and they looked and said you have a cavity i'd like to start drilling your tooth you would say well you have the validity the credibility and the legitimacy to drill my teeth. If I showed up at your house with a drill and said, I'd like to have a look at your molars, (laughs) you'd probably say no. So you could see there's a little bit of intuitive force to this. Again, right? you can see where that seems kind of reasonable, that there are people who have a certain amount of power and authority to to tell us what is true about the world. But on the postmodern view, a statement becomes true because the people in the society with the power to decide what is true have said so. They've given it their mark. They've given it its validity. they said, look, why is that statement true? Well, the scientists said so. Okay? But the postmodern twist is that the only way a claim gets to have the status of true is when the people in society who have the power to decide what is true have said so. And so in the postmodern view... It's not merely that the scientists have truth and knowledge, it's that the scientists get to decide what is true. It's true because they said so. So the modern view would say, when the pitcher throws the ball, that it's either a ball or a strike and it's the umpire's call to get it right. The postmodern view is that you throw the pitch and it's a strike or a ball depending on what the umpire says it is. It's not a ball or a strike until the umpire says it's a ball or a strike. See the difference? See that little shift? In one case, we're trusting someone to tell us the truth. In the other case, someone is deciding what the truth will be. In one case, it's the umpire's job to what? Get the call right. In the other case, the umpire decides what's a ball or a strike. Okay? Okay. Does everyone see that? That fundamental little distinction. And the catch here is that the postmodern person will assert that the people who decide what is true have their own hidden agendas, ulterior motives, cultural biases, and self-interest. And as such, their agendas, motive, biases, and self interests warps their judgment so that when they decide what's true, they do so in a way that serves their own interests, even if they're not aware of it. They have motivated reasoning. And the same goes for knowledge. Knowledge is not a matter of having an awareness or understanding of the way the world really is. For the postmodern thinker, knowledge, like truth, is a matter of who has the power to decide what counts as knowledge. So in an interview called Truth and Power, Foucault said the following, listen carefully to this. This is actually clear, by the way. So we're not gonna do that again, this is clear. Truth is to be understood as a system of ordered procedures for the production, regulation, distribution, circulation, and operation of statements. You see that? Truth isn't a matter of corresponding to the world, or mapping the world, or telling us about the world. It's a system of procedures for producing, regulating, and distributing statements. Truth is linked in a circular relation with a system of power which produce and sustain it. And to effects of power which it induces and extend it. A regime of truth. And what he's saying there is, look, the people who have power get to decide what's true. And because they get to decide what's true, they will decide what's true in a way which benefits them. Right? So the scientist gets to have decide what's true, and the scientist decides that it's true, that the scientists should get more money. So we give more money to the scientists. Then the scientists get to decide what's true using that money. And then they use that to justify getting more money, right? That's what Foucault is saying. So, the essential political problem for the intellectual, this is Foucault, is not to criticize the contents supposedly linked to science or to ensure that his own scientific practice is accompanied by correct ideology, but that of ascertaining the possibility of constituting a new politics of truth. So, he'll clarify that. The problem is not changing people's consciousness or what's in their head, but the political, economic, and institutional regime of the production of truth. So truth is a matter of a system that produces statements that get elevated to the status of true, and the goal is not to change people's minds, but to change the political, economic, and institutional regime which produces truth for its own ends. So to oversimplify that for the sake of brevity, the postmodern person thinks that knowledge and power are two features of the same object, and that these two features mutually enforce each other. The people who have power to decide which social process is used to decide what counts as truth, and the people seen as having knowledge and truth are given additional power, and the people who have power to decide what is truth use that privilege and that power to increase their power and to benefit themselves, to serve their own interests, to maintain their social position, to increase their social status, social prestige and clout. The scientist says, I should get a grant because what I'm saying is true, and then they use that grant money to produce papers which say that their work is true, and because their work is true, what do they get? More grant money. That's what he's saying. That's what Foucault thinks is going on. Accurate descriptions of the world are gone. He doesn't think it's about that. Truth is a purely social phenomenon to him. Different societies will have different standards for what's true, and different societies will have different procedures for, what, for, for selecting what they believe is true. And nobody gets to say this is the correct procedure. Right? So it's not about corresponding to reality anymore. It's about power. Who has the power to decide what is true? One person says, I think the Bible is true. Another person says, I think the Quran is true. Who gets to decide? Well, in one society, the Christians get power and they get to spread their ideas that the Bible is true. In a different society, the Muslims get power and they get to use that power to spread their ideas and tell everyone that their ideas are true, and teach their ideas as true. And it's just a matter of power. That's what he thinks. And so the result of all of this, of our strawberry Slurpee, of our buckets and chairs, and of our scientists and their powers, that we live in a hyper real world where we're inundated with signs and symbols. We're surrounded by things like the strawberry Slurpee version of the real thing. There's no objective frame of reference from which to interpret either language through which to interpret either language or the world, and there's no linchpin or no movable pillar which can serve as the fixed point by which anything else can be defined and interpreted. And truth, finally, is not a matter of making statements which correspond to reality. Truth is a matter who has the of who has the power to decide which ideas, concepts, and arguments get elevated to the status of truth. And, of course, the people who decide what is truth are hopelessly warped by their biases, hidden motives, ulterior agendas, etc., etc. So where does that leave us? Well, I'd like to use, to wrap this up with one last analogy from Mr. George Carlin, of all people. <laughs> Mr. Conductor. Okay. So he's doing a comedy special, and he he's doing a little bit about things that we've all done, and he uses an example of like, have you ever gone to pick up an, uh, a, an empty suitcase, but you think it's full, and you go, noing. He's talking about little moments like that that we all share, the little times we get disoriented, and he uses this argument, and he says, have you ever been sitting in a railroad station, there's another train sitting right next to you, and one of the trains starts moving, and you're not which, sure which one it is? Well, I'd like to do something with that. Imagine you're in a car, and the car next to you begins to move. And for a brief second, you're not sure whether it's you or the car next to you. So you tap the brake and the car's still moving. So what do you do? You're gonna look around at like a building or at a mountain or at a street sign, something that's not moving so you can get your bearings and you're gonna say, okay, I'm not moving, okay? Now imagine you're in your car and you're sitting next to you. You're sitting there, right? And next to you, the car starts moving. And for a split second, you're not sure whether it's you or the car next to you, and you tap the brake. So now, you go looking around for something to get your bearings, you look at the building, and the building moves. And then you look at the street light, and the street light moves. And the mountain moves, and the sun moves, and the street moves, and everything is moving. That is postmodernism. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is stable. There are no immovable pillars, there's no absolutes, there's no eternal truths, there's no absolute meaning in language, and no absolute frame of reference. In postmodernism everything moves. Meaning changes, the truth is ever shifting, perspectives are constantly altering, knowledge is ever changing, morals are ethereal and subject to whim. Nothing has any objective, universal, absolute, fixed meaning. And when you try to catch your bearings, There's no immovable foundations for you to lean on. There's no conceptual bearings. There's no immovable pillars, and there's no fixed point for you to use to catch your bearings. And this is the philosophical situation in America. Okay. Don't worry, it's going to get worse. (laughs) Okay. So that's our philosophical situation, right? That's the academic theory. Those are the ideas that were, were, were spread from the universities and then were metabolized into the culture, right? And then were picked up by the body of culture and digested into the culture and spread. And you can see that, right? When we talk about, well, that's just your opinion or that's just your perspective or one man's truth is another man's lie and so on and so forth. We hear things like this, right? One man's truth is another man's opinion. That's just your opinion. We have my truth, we have his truth, you have your truth, you have her truth. Right? You can see this in the language showing up. So now let's turn to the cultural situation. And I'm going to read you a number of portions from an article in Psychology Today that eventually became the basis for the book by Daniel Kelovic called New Rules, Searching for Self-Fulfillment in a World Turned Upside Down. And he's going to talk about a cultural shift that's been occurring in America, and he's going to walk us through that change. And so, so let's take a look at what he says. I'm going to read a lot of these portions so he can speak for himself, but I'm hoping that you'll give me some leeway because I really think this is worth it. <clears throat> so he says, Tomorrow is not going to look like yesterday. Tomorrow, to the extent that the data can yield clues about it, is being shaped by a cultural revolution that is transforming the rules of American life and moving us into wholly uncharted territory. In examining this revolution, we need to be clear what we mean by the word culture. In the view of the anthropologist Clifford Geertz provides focus. I'm oh, sorry, the view of the anthropologist Clifford Geertz provides a focus. Geertz emphasizes shared meanings as the essence of culture. The common understandings of what we hold about the the varied particulars of social life and individual behavior. So, what does it mean, for example, to work hard, to be successful? What does it mean when someone owns a Mercedes, or grows a beard, or is a Texan, or is a bureaucrat, or is a Republican, or likes vegetables, or is a carnivore, or is a football player? What do those things mean? When you know a society's shared understanding, you can see the character of its culture. Does everyone understand that, all that so far? It's shared meaning. What's the meaning of family? What's the meaning of Christmas? What's the meaning of love? What's the purpose and the goal of all of these things? How do we think about these things? We have to have a shared meaning and shared understanding of things like family, of life, death, the world. That's what he's talking about. Sociologist Daniel Bell gives the concept of philosophical dimension, and I'm getting some ringing here. If we could. Sociologist Daniel Bell gives the concept of philosophical dimension. Culture for me is the effort to provide a coherent set of answers to the existentialist situations that confront all human beings in the passage of their lives. (laughs) Okay? So that's the two things. Culture is about shared meanings, and it's about. a coherent set of answers to the existential situations that confront human beings in the passage of their lives. So we want to have shared meaning and we want to have shared meaning so that we can have coherent answers so that we can discuss it on the ground level, practically. So a genuine cultural revolution, then, is one that makes a decisive break with the shared meanings of the past, particularly those that relate to the deepest questions and purpose of human life. And that's the thing he's going to get into. He says, look, America has had a series of shared meanings. America has had a series of ideals, of things that it believed were true, and they're about to go through a decisive break with that. Okay? So the culture is concerned with how we create shared meaning, and the second part with coherency is about sense-making. About making sense of the world through something that's coherent. Okay? I wanna just pull myself back for a second. So he's going to talk about four, four things. He's going to talk, first of all, about the breadth of the Cultural Revolution. The changes wrought by the Cultural Revolution encompass the full sweep of American life, the private space of our inner lives, the semi-public space of our lives within family, work, school, church, and in our own neighborhoods, and the public space of our lives as citizens. Okay? Everything in life is going to be transformed by this from the inside out. The new meanings that have evolved discard many of the traditional rules of personal conduct. They encourage greater tolerance, permit more sexual freedom, and put less emphasis on sacrifice for its own sake. In their extreme form, the new meanings simply turn the old ones on their head, and in place of the self-denial ethic that once ruled American life, we now find people who refuse to deny themselves anything out of the strange moral principle that I have a duty to myself. Do you see what he's saying? That's the shift. We're going from an ethic of self-sacrifice and self-denial and duty and obligations, and we're going to go and we're going to switch that up, and we're going to trade that for an ethic of having a duty to myself, for self-fulfillment. Okay? Okay. So, he talks about this, and he does a brief analogy from the idea of tectonic plates. So, the idea that there are tectonic giant plates that move between the earth, that move beneath the crust of the earth. And what he's saying is that beneath the crust of society, there's these giant plates, these ideas, and they're shifting and changing, and those shifting in the ideas is going to create earthquakes of the earth on the surface of society. But he thinks that the changes are happening deep, deep, deep in the culture. Okay, and he says, it is, as, it is as if tens of millions of people had decided simultaneously to conduct risk, risky experiments in living using the only materials that lay at hand, their own lives. And the experiments are risky. Acting in the name of, self, of self-fulfillment, many people are startled to wake up one day and find themselves with a broken marriage, a wrong-headed career change, or a muddled state of mind about what life choices to make. So he's going to move from the breadth, which is everything in society, right? It's, it's the whole of life. And now he's going to talk about the self-fulfillment contradiction. The self-fulfillment contradiction at the, sorry, at the core of the Cultural Revolution is a phenomenon I call the self-fulfillment contradiction, the mismatch between the goals of Americans seeking self-fulfillment and the means they employ to achieve those goals. <clears throat> The goals of self-fulfillment seekers grow out of an incohate but deeply held conviction that the meaning of life is not exhausted by earning a living, raising a family, doing one's duty, etc., etc., etc. Life is expression. Life is, it is creativity. It is adventure. It is sacred. The search for self-fulfillment is a voyage of personal discovery spurred on by the belief that we must shift the priorities of self and society away from the impersonal and manipulative aspects of life. Thus, seekers of self-fulfillment invest in the best of their creativity in inventing expressive styles of living. For at the heart of the self-fulfillment search is the moral intuition that the very meaning of life resides in its sacred, expressive aspects and that one must fight, if necessary, to make room for them. Do you see that? That's that's Carl Truman, that's expressive individualism. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, we used to have duties and self-sacrifice and obligations, and we've traded that in... For self-expression and creativity and doing what you want and self-fulfillment. We used to have an objective set of goals and things that were objectively good. And you got your meaning from meeting your obligation and your duties. And now over here we have a subjective set of things of self-fulfillment, of self-expression, of of a voyage of personal discovery. Okay? Okay. And so he says, "A strategy built on the presumption of ever-expanding affluence is bound to run into trouble." Right? If you, you want to go on the, the, the voyage of, of self-expression, you've got to have some money, man. I'm going on a voyage of self-discovery. That's good. Will you be paying the rent this month. <laughs> the more serious defect, however, is not economic but psychological. People unwittingly bring a set of flawed psychological premises to the search for self-fulfillment. In particular, the premise that the human self is a hierarchy of inner needs and and self-fulfillment is an inner journey to discover them. Let me read that again. The more serious defect, however, is not economic. The biggest problem with the search for self-fulfillment isn't that we're going to run out of money. People unwittingly bring a set of flawed psychological premises to the search for self-fulfillment. In particular, the premise that the human self is a hierarchy of inner needs and self-fulfillment and inner journey to discover them. This premise is rarely examined, even though it leads people to defeat their goals and end up isolated and anxious instead of fulfilled. Okay? Okay. So the first defect is that the strategy of self-fulfillment seekers have rests on an ever-expanding economy, which is impossible. And then the second is a set of flawed psychological uh, uh, premises which says that you're, that, quote, um, that the human self has a hierarchy of inner needs and self-fulfillment and inner journey to discover them. Right? That's all you are. I'm just, I'm just a pile. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bag of inner needs and desires, and I just have to go around finding out what those are, and that's the meaning of my life. Just find out, hey, I liked that. That was fun. I guess that's meaningful. There's nothing objective. So that line alone is a death blow to the modern culture of self-expression. The flawed psychological assumptions of the self as a hierarchy of inner needs and self-fulfillment is just just a journey to discover them. It's an entirely subjective basis for meaning. It's a set of... It's it's a... When you say that it's just that meaning is about, that self-fulfillment is about a set of psychological needs and meeting them and discovering them is where meaning is found, then the only resources for meaning come from your inner self. That's it. There's nothing outside of yourself that can give you meaning. It's just discovering the things that are in here. Meaning is not out there to be found in in duties and obligations. Meaning is all in here, utterly subjective, and I just have to go on a voyage to discover what those inner needs are. It's entirely subjective. Sensing this contradiction... Between their goals and strategies and being aware of the change for the worse in economic conditions, what most people fear today is that they will end up empty-handed. So next he's going to talk about the conflict and confusion. And he says, the search for self-fulfillment and contradiction within it create intense social conflict and confusion. Hungry to live their lives to the brim and determined to consume every plate on the smorgasbord of human experience, self-fulfillment seekers challenge every norm and stir a fierce backlash among citizens fearing moral chaos. Right? I'll read it again. Okay, sure. (laughs) I'm taking requests. The greatest hits. Hungry to live their lives to the brim and determined to consume every plate on the smorgasbord of human experience, self-fulfillment seekers challenge, challenge firmly held norms, stirring a fierce backlash among citizens who fear moral chaos. Suddenly... To the psychological difficulty of making the right life choices is now added the haunting fear that the choices may be futile and that the new self-fulfillment goals may be unattainable for economic reasons. Right? So he, he mentioned earlier that there was these the economic problem that you need affluence. And he said you've got a set of flawed psychological assumptions. And when you put those two together, it's it's panic-inducing. A society preoccupied with introspection and self-fulfillment is easily caught off guard by an unanticipated shift in economic relationships. An era in which people are eager to enjoy the benefits of 30 years of unparalleled economic growth is a terrible time psychologically to face disagreeable economic truths. Okay, so he's going to make a couple of predictions. He's got a couple of things he wants to say and I want to read just two more pieces for you. The first thing he says, eventually, we will have to face the fact of the rot in our institutions and infrastructure. The inability of our schools to teach, slovenliness in the standards of efficiency and precision, the decay of our railroads, bridges, harbors and roads, the aging of our industrial plants, the litigiousness of an overlawyered society, the decline of our political parties, the bland arrogance of the news media, the living in the past of labor unions, the irrelevance of our colleges, the short-term myopia of our industrial leaders and the seeming inability of the government to do anything efficiently and well. Those and other symptoms of a troubled society nag at us like a neurotic boss who is aware of his or her own power and prerogatives but has forgotten how to do the job. So Yankelevich was actually hopeful that we would be able to overcome this when he wrote this. But he gives us one last warning, and this is the last bit. So you've watched that, right? The move from the objective meaning, from the self-sacrifice, from the duties and obligations. And we moved on the, joy, on the, on the joyous voyage of self-discovery, of self-expression, of, of finding our inner needs, of discovering our inner child, of expressing and saying whatever we want and building our own meaning. And he says this, In our demand for greater fulfillment in a time of economic turbulence, we have set in motion forces that can lead either to a higher stage of civilization or to disaster. And he was hopeful. He was saying, look, I think we can can make this work, hopefully, is what he thought. But he recognized that there was a problem, and he said, will we achieve a synthesis between traditional commitments and new forms of fulfillment? Or will we indeed end up with the worst of two worlds? A society fragmented and anomic, the family a shambles, the work ethic collapsed, the economy uncompetitive, our morality flabby and self-centered, and our personal freedom even more restricted than under the old order. If so... We enter a period of bitter, polarizing social conflict that will tear us apart, wreck our society, and crush our spirits. That was written on April 1981. 1981. You could see it. It got covered up. Be economic. Growth under the Reagan years and then the Clinton economy allowed some of that economic affluence, he says. There's another part of it where he says, look, the search for self-fulfillment isn't, isn't a yo-yo riding on the economy. But the reason that was true is because they were going through a, a gigantic economic expansion at the time under Reagan. And then that continued under Clinton. And then it kind of got lost in the shuffle during the Iraq war years, but it continued. And what did we end up with? Does he not call that out perfectly? Does that not give us a, a flawless description of our society? Will we achieve a synthesis, or will we end up with the worst of two worlds? A society fragmented and anomic, the family a shambles, the work ethic collapsed, the economy uncompetitive, our morality flabby and self-centered, our personal freedom even more restricted than under the old order. If so... We will enter a period of bitter, polarizing social conflict that will tear us apart, wreck our society, and crush our spirits. Let's go have a look back at, I don't know, the summer of 2020 and see how that turned out. He called it. He didn't didn't think that was going to happen, but he said that's a possibility. He saw the possibility coming. It took 40 years, but the future Yang-Kelovic Predicted has come to pass. So we started out with a philosophical situation in which postmodernism comes to prominence, where nothing is authentic to the strawberry slurpee version of everything. Of the real thing. You get the strawberry slurpee instead of those nice organic strawberries. There's no objective frame of interpretation for language. There's no objective foundation, no fixed point of reference for knowledge, where all claims to truth, knowledge, and goodness, beauty, and objectivity are thought to be at worst power moves in the struggle for power, and at best thought to be the warped and unreliable product of bias, self interest, and social conditioning. And we move from that to the cultural situation where we go from objective meaning with obligations and duties, and we move towards subjective meaning to be found in self fulfillment. And self expression. This means that at the intellectual level, we have accepted postmodernism, which says there is no objective, absolute, universal standard by which to determine what's true, good, and beautiful. And that means that at the level of experience and feeling, we've accepted self fulfillment ethic, which says meaning is a matter of self expression and subjective feelings and desires. And the result is now that there is no longer any absolute, universal, objective, fixed point of reference to determine anything, and there is no objective meaning through which to filter the world. In a world where postmodernism reigns and there is no objective frame of reference to interpret the world, and people are all on their own voyage of self-fulfillment, and there is no agreement about how the world, society, events, or news, or anything else ought to be interpreted, everyone is interpreting the world in a postmodern way through the lens of their own attempts at self-expression. This results in a fragmented society in which social trust diminishes, trust in institutions diminishes, dialogue becomes ever more difficult, the shared meanings dissolve, cultural coherence falls apart, and common ground begins to disappear. As our objective foundations erode out from under us, there's no more shared meaning, there's no more common understanding, nobody has the same ideas about what to pursue, everyone's just trying to express themselves in a postmodern world where everything is fake, there's no objective frame of reference, and it's all about power. So. Let's give an analogy for how that works. We're going to talk about a postmodern building. So, what's a postmodern building? A perfect example, which comes to us, I believe, from rockethomes.net, is the Van Venturi house in Philadelphia. Rocket Homes describes it this way The house features a prominent gable, an oversized chimney, and an assortment of mismatched windows. Why should the windows match or have any purpose? This is postmodernism, right? The other way, simple house was designed with unnecessary elements, such as a large slit in the facade and a huge arch across the front, which served no functional purpose. This sense of whimsy and nonsensicalness laid the foundation for the very essence of the postmodern movement. Right? There doesn't need to have a purpose. This is postmodernism. There is no truth about the right way to build a building. If you want to have tiny windows, have tiny windows. If you want to have stairs that go to nowhere, have stairs that go to nowhere. We can put the stairs anywhere we want. We can have whatever windows we want. We can have needless arches and needless chimneys. So let's read that again just so you get it. The house features a prominent gable, an oversized chimney, and an assortment of mismatched windows. The otherwise simple house was designed with unnecessary elements, such as a large slit in the facade and a huge arch across the front that served no functional purpose. This sense of whimsiness, this sense of whimsy and nonsensicalness laid the foundation for the very essence of the postmodern movement. So here's the point you can make the windows nonsensical and playful, do that with the staircase, the sinks, yeah, I could do that. You could have absurd and ridiculous landscaping, you can have strange arches, you could have doors that lead to nowhere, walls for no reason, upside down cabinetry. You know what you can't do nonsensically and playfully? The foundation. Because the foundation can't be playful and nonsensical. Because the foundation is where the building and the world meet. And if where the place where the building and the world meets isn't on a strong foundation, the whole thing will collapse. And the same thing is true of your beliefs. If your beliefs are not built on a strong foundation, then just like the building, when your beliefs meet the world, then the whole thing's going to crumble. So that's level one and level two. OK? And this little bit about the postmodern building, yeah, that's, that's what happens when we lose our foundations. But unfortunately, we don't have those foundations. We got rid of them. So now we're going to move on to level three. And at level three, we get what my friend Mike Nana calls hermeneutical tribes. So we're trapped in a world of subjectivity, right? There's no objective standards for meaning. There's no objective standards of interpretation. Everything is false and inauthentic. It's the strawberry slurpee version of the real thing. And over here in the culture, everything is about subjective self-expression. Everything is about subjectivity. Everything is about self-fulfillment. So there's nothing objective going on. So what happens is... People are trapped in a world of sub- subjectivity in which everything is a matter of interpretation and there's no objective standpoint to view the world. What happens is that people who share a worldview, ideology, culture or politics find each other and they congeal into social tribes. And those social tribes work together to interpret the world and make sense of the world according to their individual worldview. And most of the work that's going on is moral in nature. So. There's the liberal tribe and the conservative tribe and the make America great again tribe and then there's the woke tribe and then there's the libertarian tribe over there and the nihilistic tribe and then there's the burn everything down tribe and all these different tribes who are all just having their own interpretation of the world. So when something big happened, the Iraq war, the Trump presidency, the election of Joe Biden, the war in Ukraine... Each of these tribes goes about interpreting those events according to their worldview, moral values, and frame of reference of that particular tribe. So the liberals will interpret that in a liberal way. The conservatives will interpret the Ukraine war in a conservative way. The America First people will interpret it through an America First lens. And the woke people will interpret it through a woke lens. <coughs> Every cultural, and political tribe will have their own interpretation and meaning of every major event. So what's going on is that the events that occur are just creating a space in which the hermeneutical tribes can showcase their interpretations in a way that they think is intuitive. And what they want to do is each one of them is showcasing their interpretive tribes. Saying, pick us, pick us. Don't you want this tribe? Like the models on the Price of Right, you know? Here is the America first interpretation of the Ukraine war. And then over here the liberals are like, well, look at our liberal interpretation of the Ukraine war. And they're all just showcasing this. Because the moral ethic doesn't self exist, it needs to be grabbed onto something. Their interpretation, they need something to interpret in order to show off what their views are. Right? If they want to talk about what they think and what they believe about something, they want to grab onto major news events in the news and then use their interpretive framework to try and show off their moral values and moral beliefs. That's why when someone comes out and says something like, I don't know, we should go to war in Ukraine, the liberals or the conservatives will, say, will take that statement and then they will interpret that in statement and give a, a response to that statement which shows off their worldview. They need events so that they can do their interpreting. They need events that can be easy, easily interpretively connected to the moral paradigms and concepts that are involved in their moral frameworks. <coughs> and what happens is whoever's really good at that, whoever is good at providing interpret- intuitive, powerful, persuasive moral interpretations that fit with the moral framework, becomes an influencer for that tribe. And they become online social media prophets for their tribe. So what you get is you get the liberal people who interpret things really well and their tweets go viral, and, and the and the liberals who are really good at having their tweets go viral and their interpretations take off, they become sort of the influencers and the prophets of the liberal tribe. And the same thing happens with conservatives, and the same thing happens with Make America Great Again, and the same thing happens with the woke. And all of these tribes are doing this because the influencers are the people who understand the moral Paradigms of their tribe and are able to quickly and easily preside, provide persuasive and intuitive moral interpretations of news events. So basically, what happens is this: when an event happens, various hermeneutical tribes will all start a social conversation, and that all they do is it's like it's like churning butter. <clears throat> you take the milk, you pour it in, and you start churning, and it turns into butter, right? the various tribes will take the event that happened and start a discourse about it and start talking about it and they'll interpret and interpret and interpret and process and process and process that event until they get a nice morally satisfying interpretation. A nice, smooth, rich, creamy, morally satisfying interpretation of the events of the Ukraine War or of the Trump presidency. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. You can see this most easily on social media, where on YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook will produce millions of takes, and the takes, which are most morally satisfying, go viral and get signal-boosted and amplified and spread across social media. And what's happening is that the various moral and ideological influencers from each tribe are competing to decide which interpretation gets to be the t- interpretation that becomes socially dominant. Will it be the America First interpretation of illegal immigration? Or will it be the woke interpretation of illegal immigration? And they're both going to fire off hot takes and amplify and have tweets go viral. And the woke people will, will, will like and produce tweets and create discourses and conversations about how anyone who's against illegal immigration is, is a racist. And then on the other side of it, the Conservatives will, will produce tweets and YouTube videos and TikTok clips about how immigration is, is harmful and how we don't know who's coming across the border and what it's doing to the farmers. And it's a battle for who gets to have their interpretations go viral and become dominant. It's narrative warfare. It's a battle over the narrative. The facts don't matter because the facts will just be interpreted according to what? Their particular worldview. That's what the hermeneutical tribes are doing. Because remember, it's a postmodern world, right? Everything is about context and interpretation, and we get to pick the context and we get to select how we interpret it. So when meaning is the product of a a subjective search for self-fulfillment and we believe there is no objective standards for truth, knowledge, morals, and beauties, because we're living in a postmodern world, the result is hermeneutical tribes which compete to decide which tribe is dominant in making sense of the world. And this leads to what I will call clown world. So what's clown world? Clown world, that's right. Clown world is a term that emerged um, from the internet, and it describes denialism and absurdity that occurs when we have a postmodern world of self-expression. So here's here's an online definition of clown world. Are you ready for this? Okay, clown world. The The current state of global society. Women are men, men are women, the schools teach propaganda, the left is right, the right is left, so basically it's the reverse world on steroids. You could see this in the movement of fat acceptance, where people will tell you that morbid obesity is healthy. There are the typical trolls that say anything to the right of Ronald Reagan is abnormal, and this theory is becoming more true. A big part of the youth believes that communism is good and it will solve all our problems, and that we can end violence by dissolving the police. That's clown world. You see the point that he's making? It's nihilistic absurdity. Men can give birth. Women can have testicles, right? It's insanity. It's nuts. That's clown world. Joe Biden got vaccinated in a room in a, on a movie set or a studio or a, uh, fo- um, a photography set, I think you might call it, or a movie set, which was a mock-up that was meant to look like the, like the Oval Office. <clears throat> He's the president. He could just go into the Oval Office. He didn't. They had a fake Oval Office built so he could get vaccinated. Kamala Harris wanted to have a video for her uh, engaging authentically with some students, so they had the students audition. They had to audition for a spontaneous moment. How do you audition for spontaneity? How do you practice being spontaneous? Everyone get ready. We're about to be spontaneous. I mean, if I wanted someone to be spontaneous, I wouldn't tell them first. That kind of ruins the point. You see the point? It's clown world. It's absurdity. It's nonsense. It's not serious anymore because we're not a serious people. And it captures perfectly what that, that definition I'm going to read the first part of it again because it's perfect. Clown world, the current state of global society where women are men, men are women, the schools teach propaganda, left is right and right is left, and where we have movements like fat acceptance where they tell people that morbid obesity is healthy. That's clown world. But it captures perfectly what I think we mean. There isn't any shared meaning any longer. We can't even agree on what a woman is. Forget trying to define marriage or family or anything else. We don't even know what a woman is. If someone says to me, Mike, I've got a woman I'd like you to meet. Maybe you'd like to date her. I have to figure out whether or not you're woke before I go. (laughs) Otherwise, we're going to wind up in a problem. The idea at the heart of this is that once you accept the utter subjectivity of everything, meaning, truth, knowledge, beauty, then interpreting the world is just a matter of competing tribes that increasingly have no common ground. And what we end up with is a world which is nonsensical. It's incoherent. It's pessimistic. It's inauthentic. And it's nihilistic. Do you remember that thing right at the start of the Daniel Young-Kilovic piece? I said there was two things. One was shared meaning. And the second was an attempt to give a coherent answer. Right? Culture is about coherent answers to existential problems and shared meaning. And all of that is gone as we've had a decisive break from our past. In a world where you tell people there's a, no objective standards that make that make some things better than others, that make some things more worthwhile than others, when you say meaning is utterly subjective, you end up with nihilism. It might seem freeing to say that meaning is up to you and that you can decide for yourself, but but what's meaningful but then the question is why would you pick one thing over something else what's your standard i say well whatever standard you want to use okay but why would i pick one standard over another in the absence of an objective standard of what's true good beautiful meaningful all that's left is people selecting what they want based upon whatever they feel like at some given moment or other as they interpret the postmodern world through their sense of sub- objective self-fulfillment and self-expression. The result is a set of shifting standards, shifting meanings, and utter incoherence. Clown world. I've heard it said that we live in extremely stupid times. There's no objective standard for truth, no objective standard for what's meaningful, no objective standard for what constitutes a good life, no objective standard for what's beautiful, for how a child should be raised, for what counts as competence or merit, and in this world it becomes almost impossible to construct a meaningful life. We live in a world where there are no assertions, ideas, concepts, values, morals, norms, interpretations, or philosophies that can lay claim to being absolute or objective or universally true. Nothing has the status of being absolutely good, right, correct, legitimate, or valid. The postmodern world has torn down all the ideas that we elevated and provided the North, that we elevated to provide the North Star for our society and has created doubt and uncertainty as to whether or not the ideas, concepts, morals, and values that are the blueprint of our, of our society are even worth keeping." So in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis discusses morality by comparing it to a convoy of ships. And he says that in order for a voyage to be successful, ships need to be able to avoid running into each other, they need to be able to keep from sinking, and they need to be able to go where they're going. Obliterating and relativizing all the ideas... Concepts, values, and morals, norms of our society, and leaving a society with no objective ideas, no objective truth, no objective meaning, is the equivalent of shredding the sails of a ship, destroying its rudder, and leaving it adrift and directionless on an open sea with no lighthouse, compass, or anchor with which to determine where it is. With no ability to pick any particular direction and no way to navigate the difficulties of an open sea, the ships will simply drift and will be unable to reach any particular direction to say nothing of being able. To avoid crashing into each other. And that's the spot we're in. Remember my little joke off the top? He doesn't know where he is. We don't know where we are. Yeah, well, we don't know where we're going. America is a country that has absolutely no direction and has no idea where it's going, but it is determined to get there just as quickly as it can. <clears throat> So what are we gonna do about this? Well, I have a very brief, simple suggestion in the like eight seconds I have left. One of the things that postmodern philosophy did, particularly via Derda, was to directly attack the Logos. The Logos, for those of you who don't know, is defined by the Encyclopedia Britannica as an ancient, in ancient Greek philosophy and in early Christian theology, the divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering, in, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. The Logos is thought to be an eternal, objective, and unchanging truth which exists and can be discovered and known by all who seek it. The Logos is the thing around which the universe is ordered, in which it's organized, which gives it its intelligibility and its meaning. The Logos is what makes the universe intelligible and which which provides an objective meaning for the universe, objective purpose, a telos, if you will. In John chapter 1, when John says, in the beginning was the word, the term that we translate as word is actually the Greek word logos, and what John was arguing was that he, like the Greek philosophers, accepted that there was an eternal, objective logos, a divine principle, or something that was divine, which uh, was the reason and the intelligibility implicit in the cosmos, There was something objective around which the universe was organized and which gave it its objective meaning. That's what he's saying. I fumbled that a bit, so let me try that again. When John says in the beginning of the word, the term that we translate as word is actually the Greek word logos. And John was arguing that saying that he, like the Greek philosophers, accepted that there was a logos, something divine around which the the universe was organized and what gave it its meaning, its purpose, its direction, and its intelligibility. This is an ancient idea, and it's one that we're going to need to recover if we want to be able to get through the postmodern age. We need to get back to foundations. And the foundation of Western civilization is the logos. That's the thing, the objective thing, which provides meaning and purpose and intelligibility in a world without foundations. You get nothing, but when you have a logos, when you've got something that's sitting that's objective in the world, you've got a foundation. When the building moves and when the tree moves, And when the car's all around you moving and the whole world is moving, you need to find something to lean on so you can get your bearings. The same is true conceptually. When the definitions are sifting, when the meanings are shifting, when the truth claims are shifting, you need something to be able to grab onto that's stable, a foundation, an immovable pillar, and that's the Logos in Greek philosophy. The divine reason implicit in the cosmos, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. And that's the solution. I want nothing less. I want... My goal, is, my goal is to see the return of the Logos to prominence in Western civilization. We cannot step back from postmodernism and we can't avoid it. It's already here, we're in it. Can't go around it. You have to go through it. And the first step of getting through it is the return of the Logos to prominence and centrality in Western civilization. Thank you.